Listen, tonight is April the 3rd. It's 2013. Our message this evening is called Deep Conviction and Masculine Holiness. I just think that everybody in here who knows me well probably knows that I admire men of great conviction. Especially if it's of the nature that runs contrary to popular streams. The kind that is so deep that even when it faces criticism, it cannot be rooted up. Turn with me to Matthew 16, where we'll begin our message this evening. Say there when you're there. Don't get in a quiet mood. You will hurt my feelings. And if, if I cry and run out of the building, how embarrassing will that be for all of us? You can't preach a message on masculine holiness and cry and hide behind the pulpit, can you? So in Matthew 16, here comes the 13th verse. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, I'm not going to give you the entire story. Some of you have heard it, but I've stood in Caesarea Philippi twice. What an extraordinary backdrop this must have been. In the foothills of Mount Hermon, at the very beginnings of the River Jordan, there are three tributaries that actually flow into the River Jordan, the Dan, the Hypanai, and the Panias there. And this was a great seat of ancient worship. And the Romans had made it a grotto to Pan. There's a place where the rivers actually run under a mountain, and people sacrificed their babies there. What a seat of idolatry and wickedness. The cult to the temple or to the Caesar, the cult of the, the temple of the cult of Augustus Caesar was there. A man claiming to be the son of God on earth. This is the backdrop where Jesus asks, Who do you say that I am? In verse 14, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Listen to how personal the Christ becomes. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? I would like to tell you that the gospel is bold enough to put you on the spot. You will find yourself in a valley in Israel called Jehoshaphat. It means the valley of decision. The living God is not interested in what the crowd says about a subject. He's interested in what you personally say about the subject. One difference between fads and fancies and deep convictions is deep convictions are very personal. They're not party platforms. They are something that God has revealed to you that you cannot let go of. They simply define who you are. What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh my goodness. This is Peter's revelation. This day, what he hears from heaven is going to shape and form the rest of his life. There would not be a day from this moment on where he would fail to be changed by the power of God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The kind of conviction that we're speaking about tonight is the kind that hell itself cannot overcome. Amen. 
Oh, what a question to ask. Are you preaching and teaching? Are you living out things other people told you about Jesus? Or is it your deeply held conviction because revelation from the Holy Ghost has so filled your life that you personally know it to be true so that if every other man in this room changed their mind, you would be unmoved because Peter got that kind of conviction and it's the kind of thing you can build the church of the living God on. Know for certain that any man who truly hears from heaven and acts on what he hears, revelation always leads to conviction. Conviction always leads to action. Any man who truly hears from heaven, he will be resisted at every turn. This is what is meant in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he says, In fact, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. <laughs> If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that revelation will cost you something. It must be a deeply held conviction in the center of your soul, not a passing fact. Not something that comes on Wednesday and Sunday. Not something that you can easily pick up and set down. It must define who you are. And it will cost you something. When you have this kind of conviction, when the Holy Ghost has so imprinted your heart, Suddenly, conversations don't have the appeal to you that they used to. Suddenly, activities that used to have an appeal to you no longer do because of a deeply held conviction. To be convicted, we think of in the church as a bad thing. That's a prosecution term. I'm using it in the sense of being fully persuaded. Standing in a state that is already convinced of something. A great evangelist was quoted as saying, Great results cannot be obtained without both envy and opposition. The man who said that knew something of opposition. His name was Oswald Smith. Men like Billy Graham spoke of him in the same sentences as they did with D.L. Moody, considering him to be one of the greatest evangelists to have ever lived. Oswald Smith was a pastor. He was a missionary. He was an evangelist. He was born in 1889 and died in 1986. What a full life that is. He was considered too frail for missions work. Having been called too frail, having believed it for a short time, he said, I may not be able to go, but I will certainly pay for those who can. And he sponsored in his ministry more than 500 missionaries at one time. His convictions were so deep that his health didn't deter him. By the end of his ministry, he had been on 21 world evangelism tours. Over the course of 80 years, he preached more than 12,000 sermons. Think on that, friends. He preached them in over 80 countries. He wrote 35 books that were translated into 128 languages as well as 1,200 poems, a hundred of which have been set to music. Do you think he knows something about evangelism, something about deep conviction? When he says, friends, that great results cannot be obtained without both envy and opposition, this was the voice of experience in his life. Well, let us ask them, if Paul told Timothy that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 
and evangelists of not a thousand years ago, but of the last hundred years, confirm that this word is true. What do you believe so strongly? What are you yearning for so deeply? What moves you so powerfully that the people around you think you're strange? Did they speak against you and criticize you? That they're envious of you. Many of you have experienced this as soon as you turn to the power of the gospel and away from dead religion. Those in dead religion began to hurl hymnals at you at every turn. They say that you joined a cult. They began to pick on you at every turn. And why? Because your love for Jesus was greater than it had ever been before. This is a fact of the gospel. One way to identify that you are walking in the deep convictions of the Holy Ghost is that other people will not like it. Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, the fourth chapter, tell me there when you were there. Dustin made it. Come on, church. Tell me there. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah, the fourth chapter. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Nehemiah. Y'all there? Say there. Help me out, say there. Pastor, don't leave me behind. I'm there. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Before we read the next verse, think on this for a second. Who gets mad when you rebuild a wall? How on earth could this be offensive to anyone? It's offensive because Nehemiah has heard from the living God. Nehemiah has risked his entire life, career, reputation. He has staked it all on the fact that God's word is true. That God has said he wants a wall rebuilt. So Tobiah is angry. Your convictions will upset the apple cart of those who are subject to a spirit of disobedience. They will find it strange that you do not plunge with them into a flood of dissipation, as the scriptures say. You ought to make people uncomfortable by your very holy existence. When you are around, they're uncomfortable to tell the jokes they would normally tell. When you are around, they're uncomfortable to speak in the way that they would normally speak. They suddenly find themselves in a defensive position, though you have said nothing. As soon as people find out I'm a pastor, they begin to justify their lives. Pastor, I, I, I go to church. Really, I didn't even ask. Why are you telling me that? Pastor, uh, uh, you know, I, I love the Lord. Really, a few minutes ago, I heard you saying terrible things that nobody who truly loves the Lord would say. Oh, well, we're, we're all sinners. Your deeply held convictions are like a double-edged sword. They cut those who are around you, but they also free you from the love of the world. I want to encourage you, friends, that the deeper you hold them, the sharper the edge of the sword is. We should be so imprinted in the center of our soul that we look forward to the opposition, not as competition, but as refinement. Our Lord is separating us from the world. This criticism and opposition ultimately serves to be 
the proving ground that shows the difference between our fancies and our God-given convictions. We live in a church age where fads roll in and out of the church constantly. How do you know the difference between what a man has heard from heaven and what he simply preaches from a pulpit? Well, how deeply does his life adhere to what he is saying? And of course, you must know his life. In the third verse of the fourth chapter, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stones. <clears throat> Listen, friends. We get baptized in criticism. Frank Frangipani said it this way, To inoculate me from the praise of man, he baptized me in the criticism of man until I died to the control of man. How free from the control of man are you this day? Because when you live in their criticism for the favor of your father, slowly you begin to die to what they think about you. But if you've never experienced criticism for the sake of the gospel, if you don't know what it is to be publicly maligned or persecuted, then it hurts very much when they say things. I believe, church, that our convictions are to run so deep that people can't help but notice them. When we walk into your business, we ought to see that you love the Lord. It ought to be plastered on your walls and your faces. When we walk into your homes, there ought to be a distinctly different atmosphere. When you go into the marketplace, the spirit in them should feel the spirit that is in you. I had not been born again six months and I went to a psychic convention because I was ready to take on the world. This is the definition of zeal without knowledge. But before I even spoke, people ran from Matthew and I. Ran in the other direction. Because what is in them is desperately fearful of what is in you. Jesus entered into a town and demons cried out of men, Son of man, have you come to judge us before the appointed hour? And our lives should say the very same thing. The fact that you love the Lord, that you stand in His Word, and that you walk to a holy life, causes Samballot and Tobiah to become so fearful that they attack. Because the fact that you do it and they do not stands in judgment against them. The living God is moving us to a deeper place in our walk. We are not a part of the social gospel movement. We are not the emergent church or any such thing. We are part of the orthodox Christian faith that Jesus died to establish. And we still die to uphold it. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is at war with the world, and the world is at war with it. How dare we make friendships with the world? Think on our brother Stephen in Acts 6. Turn with me to Acts 6. Listen to his convictions and how this ended for him. In Acts 6 in the 8th verse, Now Stephen, a man full of God's power. <laughs> now Stephen, a man full of God's grace in power, did wonders, great wonders, and miraculous signs among the people. What does verse 9 say? Opposition rose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Of course it did. How could it not? He was walking in power. He was walking in miraculous signs. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
persecuted. Of course opposition will rise. How could it not? The devil has to stop him. The devil has to shut him up. He has to defame him. He has to quiet him. He has to back him up. Or else he's going to lose ground. Did you know that when seven Jewish sorcerers, the sons of Sceva, went to go try to do what Paul was doing in the book of Acts, they said, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of a man who was demon-possessed. Even the demon testified, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard about, but who are you? Even hell knew Paul's name. He was terrorizing their territories. He was plundering hell to populate heaven. He was stealing goats and making them sheep, friends. Men who practiced sorcery were burning their books. The whole city was in an uproar because of his presence. And yet this is one of the few churches in the book of Revelation that gets mostly praise. Perhaps a man of deep conviction will have deep impact on the people around him. Stephen was full of grace, power, and miracles, but envy and opposition rose. Criticism killed him at the hands of an angry mob, but not before the sincerity of his conviction was proven to all. Friends, Stephen is in glory right now. Can you say amen? Yes. Stephen is in the presence of the King of Kings. Amen? amen. Where are his critics? We must realize that earthly critics will have a different eternal fate than we will. So it's light in momentary troubles. So your relatives do not like what you're doing. They're not supposed to. This is what shows that you will be saved and they condemned and brings them to a place where they can accept a Holy Ghost conviction in their lives. What happens when the church of God sways like a reed in the wind? Always working to save itself. What if John the Baptist had lived such a life? He prepared the nation of Israel to receive the glory of King Jesus precisely because he would not bend in his convictions. He was like a standard or a ruler that let them know right where they stood with God. And so the whores, tax collectors, these kind of men came to him in droves. And they repented and found the glory of God. We need a church with a spine. Amen. We need men who have convictions that run so deep it controls their feet. They stand where God has told them to stand. They go where God has told them to go. And they say what God has told them to say. Oh, is the Holy Ghost sounding out the depth of your conviction? C.T. Studd is my all-time favorite man of God, I think. At least this year. Listen to the conviction in this statement. Christ's call is to save the lost, not the stiff-necked. He came not to call scoffers, but sinners to repentance. Not to build and furnish comfortable chapels, churches, and cathedrals at home in which to rock Christian professors to sleep by means of clever essays, stereotype prayers, and artistic musical performances. But to capture men from the devil's clutches and from the very jaws of hell. This can be accomplished only by a red-hot, unconventional, unfettered devotion in the power of the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody say amen. 
occupied with the truth of the statement. The church world didn't love him. Can you imagine why? He stepped on their toes. His convictions were like a double-edged sword. It freed him from the care or concern for being controlled by men. But it cut at the very heart of their sin, and they hated him for it. When I hear C.G. Studd speak of power and the Holy Ghost, and I'm already talking about deep convictions, how can we not turn to the book of Thessalonians? Go to Thessalonians, the first chapter. Say there when you were there. there. Did not Paul speak there. of power, the Holy Ghost, there. and deep convictions? There. Speaking of a man that was undeterrable. Prison, shipwrecks, beatings, death. He couldn't be stopped because the living God's impact on his life left such a mark that he could no longer be swayed by what men thought. Oh, that the Holy Ghost would press upon your heart tonight so strongly that you could never again be swayed by what someone who thinks they're important thinks you. Oh, Jesus, it's okay to say amen sometimes. 1 Thessalonians 4, look at the fourth verse. For we know, brothers, loved by God, what thing it is to be loved by God. I remember when I went to bed every night fearful, confessing sin year after year, knowing I was unforgiven for it. I was 18 years old, still confessing sin from 7 years old. My prayer every night was, Jesus, please don't return now. I know that I am not ready, but I had no plan to change my life. I simply did not want to be judged. I know what it is to lay in bed fearful of God. And I remember the day He liberated me from that burden. And I could lay there in love with Him. And loved by Him. Oh my goodness. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Have you ever stopped to think why of everyone that you know? He made an impact on you. Why of everyone you know, you were in that place at that time. How many sermons had you heard before you got born again? How many Christians had you met? What made that day different? The difference is He chose you. Amen. And when He chooses you, when the God of heaven puts His hand on your shoulder, it has to make a difference. Amen. It has to make a difference. It's no longer political ideology. It's no longer simply religious rhetoric. It is personal now. It's no longer who do men say that I am. It's who do you say that I am. And now I know who he is. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You want to say that you're chosen by God, and I agree with you. But the things in your life that say you're chosen by God are when there is power, when there is the Holy Spirit, and when there is deep conviction. You show me a powerless man, and I'm going to question whether or not he's chosen. You show me a man that is not being led by the Holy Ghost, and I question whether or not he's chosen. You show me a man that does not have deep convictions. 
And you have to wonder whether he is walking in his chosen calling. Christians ought to be defined by these things. This gave Paul courage to speak to the Thessalonians as brothers. He saw these things in their lives. What do your friends see in you? Do they whisper that you're a flake when you walk away? Do they think you're a hypocrite? A part-time Christian? Or do they see a man or a woman that they admire? That they would like to be like? The most encouraging thing in my entire life has been to be raised in Christ in a peer group of men that all admire each other more than themselves. We all aspire to be like each other. We live for the affirmation of the Father and we solely believe that our brother already has it. What an encouraging kind of fellowship that is. It spurs us on towards good deeds. I wish that you all had it and you can have it. We're building it here. How deep do you want to go? How far do you want those convictions to pulse through your veins? Are you content to simply be a part of a crowd? Or do you have to go further? Oh, pastor, maybe this should be a Sunday message. Well, I am the pastor that likes to preach to the core, just like it's Sunday. I think that it's tired of being coddled in Christianity. I don't want to see Jesus on that day and have to duck my head in shame because our exploits have not begun to measure those on the other side of the planet. And the trouble is I have gone to meet them and they do pale in comparison. So what is left for us, friends? To hear from the heavens, to know our purpose, and to dig in deep despite all opposition. That is all that is left. It causes men to say things like, I want a hundred thousand souls and mean it. It causes men to say, it's the fourth quarter of my life and the other three are gone, but this one is going to count. It causes men to abandon all, to have a reckless abandonment of self for the gospel because they're fully persuaded that that's all that matters. I was fortunate that the living God came for me at a time when I was still very young. Having said that, every day you have a choice. Every single day you have a choice to live in lethargy and apathy or to stand up and make a difference because of what Jesus has done in you. How many days have gone by that we can't get back? I dare not let tomorrow go. I want to make the most of every opportunity for my King. These are essentials for Christian ministry. And no other thing will substitute. Stud put it in this way. The best training for a soldier of Christ is not merely theological college. They always seem to turn out sausages of varying length. Tied in each end without the glorious freedom a Christian ought to abound and rejoice in. You see, when in hand-to-hand -hand conflict with the world and the devil, neat little biblical confectionaries is like... The shooting lines with a pea shooter. One needs a man who will let himself go and deliver blow right and left as hard as he can hit, trusting in the Holy Ghost. It is experience, not preaching, that hurts the devil and confounds the world. Somebody say amen. Yeah. The training is not that of the schools, but of the market. It is the hot, free heart and not the balanced head. 
lost multitudes rather than guard the 99 well-fed sheep in the pen. Oh my goodness, can somebody say DCD? You don't even know what DCD is because you don't read the books I give you. But they're in the library. It is an attitude. It is a craving, powerful, tenacious abandonment of the world that says heaven or bust. Devil, look out because I am hunting you today. I am after you. I have seen what you did to the world. And now there will be hell to pay at the hand of God, which is in my hand now. Instead of lay down and look for comforts. There's only a couple possibilities. Either we don't believe we can do it. And we shrink back into the shadow. Or we stand up and take what the living God has said is ours. I have a conviction. If he said it is ours, it is ours. If he said it's mine, it's mine. And nobody can take it from me. A pastor came down here week before Easter. He was from another city, and I had never met him. And I was embarrassed because he asked me, hey, are you the kind of church that prays for the sick? And I thought, oh, dear Lord, I made it through two and a half hours of a service, and I did not let this man know that we pray for the sick. I was standing in front of a monument from Azusa, and yet I had not made it plain. In this moment, it's assaulting to my faith. I can feel the hairs tingling on the back of my neck. I'm a little boy again in a classroom as a failure, standing in front of an older man who needs something, but he's not sure he can get it in a place like this. But it doesn't depend upon me or my feeling. So I did what the Word of God says to do, and I stretched out my hands, and I grabbed an elder, and I prayed for him. His testimony is two hours later, for the first time in 20 years, fire went through his spine, and he's healed. But it does not depend upon your feelings. It does not depend upon your circumstances. You need to grab hold of a revelation in your heart. And when you begin to believe the truth to the extent that it affects your attitude, you become dangerous to the enemy. I'm not interested in playing nice with the enemy or anyone else, especially not his puppets. The only thing more insulting than someone that thinks that they're going to knock you off is somebody who thinks they can send their little brother or sister to do it. If I'm not going to bow the knee to a demonic principality, I am certainly not going to to the minions. Oh, come on, church, that we might rise up in power. Oh, that you knew what was yours in Christ. You are seated in the heavenly realms. I don't want to sit in the sheep pen. I want to set up the rescue shop at the foot of hell. I'm no different than any other man in here. We get tired. We get hungry. Goodness. I'm fat. We go on a treadmill every morning. Not to get less fat, but to be able to drag my fat body up and down the hills that we have to go up and down. And every time a mission trip's over, I think, I'm going to wait a while before the next one. But the problem is they're still dying. They're still going to hell. They're still hungry. 
but it's worth it. That's what a conviction will do in your heart. It's not a passing fad. It's not a year of missions. It's not, oh, a new church growth program. It is who we are because it's what our convictions have made us. Oh, Jesus, what have your convictions made you? Friends, let us consider what the power of the gospel moving of the Holy Spirit and deeply held convictions produce. We don't have to look any further than the first two or three verses of this book. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Oh, man. All of us work. You don't work, you don't eat. Until this administration, they'll feed everyone whether they work or not. What is your faith producing? See, their work was produced by their trust in God. They had such a deeply held conviction. That work produced faith, or faith produced work rather. This is the power of the gospel. The gospel teaches you to trust. And that trust-grounded obedience yields a life of work. You know, your life will be summed up one way or another. If you're anything like the kings of Israel, and I pray that you are because you were declared to be princes with God. One day in the annals of the book of the kings, it will be written about you. He did or did not do what the Lord required. What an amazing thing. Your body of work will have one reputation or another. It was produced by faith or it was not produced by faith. How many people will watch all that they ever worked for burned up because it was never really about Jesus. It was just feelings. I would like to tell you that I think there will be many multi-campus churches and many famous pastors in this world that will not enter into eternity with nearly what they had in this life. And there will be many shirtless, shoeless, nameless pastors around the globe that raised the dead and healed the sick and no one knew their name and maybe they couldn't even read that will enter into eternity kings with Jesus. What is your trust in the living God producing in your life? He moves on to say your labor prompted by love. <clears throat> labor prompted by love. Oh my goodness. Sometimes the work of the gospel is labor. By the sweat of our brow we work the fields. The garden fights back, friends. It grows weeds. It cultivates hard ground. It is forever trying to ruin soil in our hearts. It can be labor. What prompts your labor? Is it religious duty? What prompts your labor? I would say it better be the love shed in your heart by the Holy Ghost. When you have been so forgiven, so touched, so loved, and so filled, how can you not love a Lord like that and gladly work for Him? My wife labors in the house. She doesn't just work. She labors. She's almost never thanked for it. We point out everything that's not where it should be and forget all of the things that are exactly where they should be. And we do it consistently because we are ungrateful slobs. 
There's hope for us, though. Why does she do it? Because she desperately loves every member of the family. She doesn't do it because it's a job. She could go be a maid and make more money. I don't pay her at all. She does it because she's in love. Why do you do what you do for the Lord if you do anything at all? You better have work that is produced from faith. Yeah. You better have labor for the Lord that has been prompted by your love for Him. This last one is maybe the target this evening. And your endurance inspired by hope. I believe that the reason some men endure and other men do not is because of deeply held convictions. Isn't it interesting that we speak of power, we speak of the Holy Ghost, and we speak of deeply held convictions? And you can see in these people's lives that the power of the gospel produced work in them by faith. The Holy Spirit's love in their life caused labor prompted by love, and their deeply held convictions ended up causing endurance that inspired hope. When you see what a man fights for in his life, when he believes he has a son in Haiti and he will not let it go, he'll fight hand, tooth, and nail until the child that he's never seen becomes his child in his home. When you see that a woman has to labor for a child, she believes she's going to have a baby and she is not yet pregnant, but buying baby clothes. Spending time before the living God expecting Him to change her situation. Now we know something of what it is to have an endurance that is inspired by hope. See, for us it's not hope at all except that we've not actually touched it. But our conviction is so strong that it tells us it's just as real as if we were holding it in our hand. We're at point A and God says we're going to be at point B and the distance becomes immaterial. We will endure whatever it takes Amen. because our hope and our endurance come from our convictions. Where are your convictions, saints? What do you know that you know that you know the living God has told you? If you eliminated everything that was hand-fed to you, if you eliminated everything that you ever heard from anyone else about the Lord, what can you say like Peter was revealed to you from heaven and not from men because that's where your conviction flows from? The very best we hope to do from a pulpit in a church, in a Sunday school class or a discipleship class is point you in the right direction. But when heaven deposits it in your heart, you never let it go. And it changes you in a way that you cannot be talked out of. Do you realize that most of us were thrown out of our houses when we got born again by parents that claimed to be Christians? And it was not that they were bad people. It's that our convictions became so strong that they were blinding in the eyes of our parents. My family sat around every evening and watched shows that almost everybody in the room would say are completely innocent. But when I stood in the presence of God, they no longer were appealing to me. And that was convicting to everyone around me. I was not trying to hurt anyone. I was not trying to be holier than thou. I simply had been stamped from heaven and would never again be useful to the world. Where do you stand, friends? How about this verse? The sixth verse. 
You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. A man of deep conviction will spread that conviction to others. They will see it, be inspired by it, and they will imitate it. One way to look at your Christian walk is who finds it so valuable? Who sees such worth in what God is doing in you? Did they want to imitate what you were doing? This is not to beat you up, friends. This is to tell you what is possible. This is to tell you what is expected. This is to tell you what the King of Kings demands. The letter to the Thessalonians was not written to the pastors. It was written to the congregation. You ought to have lives that move other people to envy or opposition. Because that's a productive life. Yeah. If you are not there, if you look at the Bible and you see this is the Bible standard and you're here, I'm telling you the distance between you're at, where you're at and where the Bible says you should be is immaterial. You get the conviction of the Holy Ghost and you do whatever it takes to close the gap. Everything else does not matter anymore. If you're going to stand before the king, you have to have closed that gap. Is there anybody out there that could say amen to something like that? Amen. Our convictions inspire each other and encourage one another to have the boldness to act. Make no mistake about it. The kingdom is about action. If there were ever a time to act, friends, it's now. So many pastors have already thrown in the towel. They've said that we're in the post-Christian era. Oh, well, if they say we're in the post-Christian era, I guess we should just close their churches and stop collecting offerings then, huh? Oh, they're not about to do that. They're going to ride the thing right into the ground. I say no in the name of Jesus. Amen. Even if the whole nation is going to hell in a handbasket, every life that you save is a life that Jesus died for. The time may be changing. Maybe it's going out the other way. But every life that you save is a life that is valuable to the living God. How dare we look at the state of affairs and say it's hopeless. We have to rise up and say for this one, it can be different. For this one life, it is different. And that life will turn into a family. And that family will grow of the world. If it's not true, how did you get here? Amen. Not one of you are here because you saw an advertisement on TV. Not one of you are here because you were offered something in return for your faith. You were here because you met someone of conviction. Amen. And it began to spread through your family. And now your hearts are being stirred for the nations. If it worked for you, how do you know that it won't work for your neighbor before you've asked? Oh, my goodness, friends. I have one more studly quote. Is that okay? Yes. I mean, with a name like Stud, how could you not love this? <laughs> Too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. War is declared. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven, he will fight for us Amen. as we for him. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and the minions of hell will not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear 
What a question! Should we writhe in fear, saints? No. 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 I say no. Let them take guns. That's not what makes me powerful. Let our economy be depressed. That's not what makes me powerful. Let them push political views upon me. That is not what makes me powerful. I am filled with the power of the gospel, with the Holy Ghost, and with deep conviction. And in the name of Jesus, my labor of love will be produced by faith. In the name of Jesus, we will leave a legacy on this planet. Before the world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, nappy-pammy Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him. We will live and we will die for Him. And we will do it with joy, unspeakable singing in our hearts. Oh, this was written a hundred years ago. It was written a hundred years ago and it's no less true. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than living trusting in man. And we will come to this position. When we come to this position, the battle is already won. At the end of the glorious campaign in sight, we will have the real holiness of God. Not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness. One of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Yeah. He said it. He did it. And he had it. Yeah. But his day is past. Yeah. I wish it were the resurrection today. And C.T. Stubb were pastoring you. But you are stuck with me. <laughs> I wish that our brothers like Wilkerson and Raven Hill. I wish that their day was not gone. But it's gone friends. They have finished their work. Where will the generals come from? Where will the men who make a difference come from? They've always come from the lowly. They've always come from the humble. They have always come from the son of Jesse that nobody wanted. So I said, why not you? I said, why not me? If the world doesn't like it, good. I will take it as validation. They're supposed to oppose us. They're supposed to be envious of us. That's immaterial to the saints of the living God. Because we have a conviction that He's worth it. Amen. We were bought by the blood of Jesus. Amen. And the very blood of Jesus testifies to us still that if we're in the body of Christ, we will share in the fellowship of His suffering. So it is an honor then and not a dishonor. Oh, church, that we could have a time of repentance. That we could have a time of prayer. And that when you get up from that time of prayer, you could be like a man breaking a hub or coming out of a sprinter's block. That a gun would have been fired in your life and you would race towards a finish line. I have friends. Hey, not friends. I have acquaintances, even relatives, that openly mock the idea that the finish line may be closer for me than for some others. They hate the idea. Why would they hate the idea? Is it just because they miss me? No, they don't like me now. So why would it be? Because if I live today, 
like every day counts. What does that say about their lives? If I live today like every day were precious, what does that say about their lives? That's why they hate me. And they'll hate you too. Oh, it'll be a whole different set of people. But they'll hate you too. But you'll be loved by the living God. Hallelujah. And every once in a while, a persecutor, a murderer, a devilish person who thinks they do a service to God by being ugly to you will have a blinding experience with Jesus that opens their eyes for the very first time. And they will join your ranks, but they will be men of conviction because they had a total turnaround. Oh, that we would have a total, total turnaround. Let's stand to our feet, saints.